Hi. So, <clears throat> Richard said this, um, but just for, for all of us to catch up, we are in a, a vision series within our church called Present Future. And if you look at the graphic behind me, you'll notice that present is a, a healthy tree and yet a young tree that is in like the spring of its bloom. And so then you can see in the future is this idea that we are aiming towards spiritual maturity and blossoming what Jesus calls fruitfulness. Um, there's language all throughout scripture in old and new that what Jesus does in our hearts is he turns us into fruitful human beings, not only in the product of our hands, but the product of our lives and the way that we usher in his grace and his kingdom to the world around us. And so this is what we're shooting for. And so we have a couple of... Um, values that we are trying to define because we want to be pulling in the same direction. If all of us are here in community, but we're all going in different directions or we have different goals in mind, uh, it's just ineffective to say the least. And so what we're trying to do is align ourselves for what are we shooting for? We're beginning that by going over our six values, which are one, the gospel is for all of life, which we covered last week. Today, two, that we are joyful and generous. Three, that we find our way by prayer and God's word. Four, that we practice the one another's in community. Five, that we are zealous to serve the poor and see the lost redeemed. And then number six, that we multiply and send disciples and churches. Now, today we are talking about um, joy and generosity, that we are joyful and generous. And for each of these six values, we have chosen a graphic that helps like anchor some memory. So last week, the gospel is for all of life. We had this one that looks like an orbit. And this was to help us like visually see that Jesus is the sum and center point of all of creation, that everything orbits around him. And that image helps remind us that when our priorities get backwards and we or our ego or our jobs, whatever it is, gets into that place in the center, ultimately destruction will follow. Now today our graphic is something that I really like. I hope you guys enjoy this. It is... A chocolate bar. <laughs> we are joyful and generous. And there's some fun linguistic twists that come off of this, is that we are generously joyful and we are joyfully generous. Now, the chocolate bar is intended to be a bit of a mystery for you. And so in about 15 minutes, I'm gonna bring this back up with some more clarity, but I'm gonna give you that from now until then to think about why is a chocolate bar our chosen symbol for joy and generosity. The person in the next 15 minutes who gets closest to that answer when I ask you will get a chocolate bar. There will be prizes. So let that ruminate in the back of your mind as we move forward. Now, before we begin, I want to just gauge the room. I want to get some feedback from you guys. When you hear that we're about to talk about being joyful and being generous, how does that make you feel? Tired. Yeah, right on. Um, so here's what I'd ask you. Could I have every single person raise your hand for me? Every single person raise your hand. Um, so leave your hand up if you feel excited to talk about joy and generosity. And if you're not really sure how you feel, put it down. Okay, thank you. Okay, everyone, hands back up. <laughs> leave your hands up if when I immediately say we're gonna talk about joy and generosity, you find yourself bracing a little bit because you're not sure what you need to do next. Leave it up if that is accurate to you. Thank you, hands down. 
I promise you that today there will be no pointed fingers. Uh, there will not be a sense that you need to do better. My best intentions for our time together is that we once again taste the beauty of good news. And that that good news and our experience of it transforms us into people who are joyful and generous. And that happens over time. Now I've got one more question for you. Can I have everyone's hands up? Chris in the back, like you're on it. Um, okay, leave your hands up if when you show up on Sunday gatherings, you immediately feel, excuse me, when you are part of our Sunday gatherings, you feel that it's more somber than joyful. Leave it up if it feels more somber than joyful. <laughs> See someone like, yeah. Hands down. It's not just you. It's not just your perception. That is a reality. Often when we get together, for whatever reason, our group culture is we tend to err towards somber and sobriety rather than joyfulness. And I'm not discounting at all depth or like substance in our time together, but we do err towards a bit of like a gray mentality rather than joy. It's not just you who experience it, and it's not just your fault. This is something that all of us, um, some things we can't control, some things we can, but much of it is operating in the background. Now, here's our plan for today. One, we're going to lean into our conversation around joy. Because the reality is much of us, like many of us experience our personal lives, but then also our shared communal life as a little bit more somber than we do joyful. And because you guys are like really stinking generous. Um, honestly, you have taught me over the past five years of being part of this church family what generosity actually means in practice. You regularly blow me away with your generosity towards me, towards each other. Like I see, like it is just good. And so we're gonna lean into joy today. Now, here's, here's what we're gonna do with our time. We're gonna look at like scriptural and historical examples, just kind of validating, like do people who experience the gospel actually become more joyful and generous? Is that true? And then we're going to consider the difference between joy and happiness, because those things are really intertwined, right? And so it's hard to sometimes know the difference of how we should experience those. And then we're going to consider, are there barriers to us individually and communally experiencing joy that are not only your lack of faith? It's easy when we don't feel joyful enough to feel like it's my lack of faith. I would like to present something for us that it is more than just that. And there's potentially some false guilt that we carry. And then we're going to conclude our time by looking at that individual and shared expressions of joy and generosity. And as well as like some actual practices that we can practice doing that make us more comfortable with expressing joy and generosity. Just because you have it doesn't mean you flaunt it, right? So we want to like have joy and then express joy. So uh, for scriptural examples, um, I'm just going to run through a quick list. I've put them up on the board. So if you want to like look them up on your own time, you can. First is in Matthew chapter two. This is the beginning of the lived life of Jesus. The, the wise men find him in Bethlehem. And Matthew chapter two says, when they found the star above where he was, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then when they entered the room where he was, they fell down on their faces and worshiped him. 
and they gave him immensely generous gifts. They honored him with their generosity and gift giving. Later in Acts chapter 8, this is the the story of the people of God kind of lived out in history. Acts chapter 8, there's a, a man who's a eunuch, and he's a bit of a, like a spiritual person. So he's he's in kind of like a like a carriage, and he's reading some scriptures. And Philip, one of the disciples, is walking alongside, and he sees this man who's a eunuch reading the scriptures, and he goes, hey, I notice you're, you're reading the Hebrew scriptures. Do you like, do you know what they mean, what they are? And the eunuch goes, no, like I, there's something spiritually significant about them, but I don't really know how to read it. And so Philip proceeds to explain to him, like, oh gosh, this passage you're reading, it's all about this, and it's all prophesying the man Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And this eunuch is so enraptured by the truth of the gospel that he goes, Philip, like, what do I need to do now? Like, I, I believe, like, there's something true in what you're saying. What do I do? And Philip says, well, you get baptized. That's the first step. And the eunuch goes, okay, yeah, let's do it. Like, there's a river. Can I do it there? And Philip goes, yeah, great, okay. And so they, they pull the cart over and they go and they baptize him. And Philip ends up moving on, but it ends that interaction by saying that this eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, we have a description of what it looks like for a community of believers to live together. And I'm going to read this really quickly. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It describes the rhythms of a Christian community. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, notice, and they had all things in common. They lived generously. They were selling their possessions and belongings. They distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, quote, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see like throughout scripture, there's like back-to-back evidences. And honestly, like I had to cut this list in, like I had to take a third of this because there's so many examples. But there's one more example that I want to drive us to that both brings us to see the joy of people responding to the gospel as well as a bit of a dark side. This is in Acts chapter 13. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are in a crowd and they've been preaching the gospel to Jews as well as a group of Israel uh, Gentiles. So that means some of them were religious in tradition. They'd grown up in Israel, the Jewish tradition. Some of them were non-Jewish. That means they did not participate in that uh, Hebraic tr- uh, religion. And so Paul and Barnabas finished preaching, and here's what happens. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They were so eager to hear more. They said, come back next week. Please come back next week. After meeting the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, notice the dark side of the gospel, or the dark side of our response to the gospel. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. But Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, they're speaking now to the Jews who are responding with jealousy, and they say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. 
Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, those that don't know God. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, quote, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, end quote. And then it can concludes. When the Gentiles, those who did not know God, heard this, they began rejoicing, and they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. These were men and women who prior to this moment thought the kingdom of heaven was shut to them and was only available to a small group of religious Jews. And in this moment, Paul says, no, the plan of God is to open this to the Gentiles. And they respond with joy and rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. But now notice one more thing in conclusion. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, those with authority and power, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, another city. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So we have here people responding with great joy to the gospel, and yet another group of people who hear the same exact gospel and respond with jealousy and rejection. And Paul's words and Jesus's words earlier is harsh. And he says, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And yet the men and women who were Gentiles in this situation, who thought the kingdom of heaven was shut in their face, all of a sudden the grace of Jesus is being preached. And they go, I thought I was out. I thought I was stuck to a system of sacrifices. I don't get it. And now Paul is saying, no, the King Jesus Christ has made salvation an option for you. And all you need to do is receive it. Now, in all of these situations where people respond with joy, where they respond with transformation, it makes me ask, like, are there reasons? Like, what are the reasons? What's the contents of the gospel that makes them respond with such joy? So I've got five really quick summative reasons why the gospel creates joy. Number one, the gospel creates joy because it teaches that there is a God. Even in this period of history, there were people that were atheistic or agnostic. And there, the gospel says there is a God. And not only does he exist, he created all things and he thought it was good. So rather than the universe either happening by chance or being made by a God who's now so disappointed he can't wait to wipe the whole thing off the face of the map, there is a God and he loves his creation and he's devoted to it. Number two, that God is motivated by love and justice. That God will not let evil go unpunished, unaddressed, and yet that same God through love is merciful and he opens the kingdom of heaven to people that do not deserve it. And these next three are a bit of um, theological lingo, so I'm going to unpack them real fast. Number three is just through Christ we're justified. What that simply means is that the life of Jesus was lived in such a way that all of our sin and guilt has been transferred to him willingly. He takes all of the sin and guilt that we will ever have, past, present, or future, and he absorbs it and he pays for it, leaving you spotless and clean before God. Now, before we move on to that, like, hang on that. You, your real life, the failings you had yesterday and this morning and the ways you will fail tomorrow and 
at 60 years old and at 70 years old, all of those things are known by God and wiped clean. If you are justified through Christ, there will be no point in your lived life that you need to shy from the presence of God. That's big news. Point number four, that through the Holy Spirit, we are being sanctified. This means that God gives the spirit of him to live in our hearts to sanctify us. That word sanctify, think of like the sanctity of marriage, the holiness of marriage. This means that we are being holyified. We're being made holy through the spirit of God in us. What this means is that your sanctification, your ongoing transformation is not up to you alone. It is not primarily dependent on your willpower or self-discipline, but rather the mercy of God transforming your heart over time. And our final point, point number five, that God the Father guards our future glorification. Ultimately, the end of the journey is not you being a slightly more religious and nice person. The end of the journey is that God promises he will make a new heaven and a new earth and you will receive a resurrected, glorified body. All of your ailments will be gone. All the ailments of your loved ones will be gone. All of the sin that you wrestle with will be gone. He will indwell with his people. And you will experience glorification in the presence of God. And notice this, not only will you be glorified, who's doing it and guarding it? Not you, (laughs) which is really good news, right? Now, all of that feels really theological, but like notice how specifically relevant it is to the deepest parts of our humanity. Our feelings of guilt. Am I worthy enough? Am I actually loved? Is there meaning in the world or is this all just a chaotic mess? Why do I suffer? All of these things are specifically addressed in the gospel with good news. Which brings us to this point of joy, right? And the way that it gets a little bit mixed up with the word happiness. Has anyone here ever felt a weird religious pressure to be happy all the time? (laughs) For reals. I'm just seeing some real big head nods in the back. This is that point where we feel as though if I'm not happy all the time, it's a lack of my faith. My lack of happiness is my failure to believe well enough. Now, I've got some really good news for you, and I'm 100% positive of this as I say it. God does not expect you to be happy all the time. He doesn't. Lack of constant happiness is not evidence of your lack of faith. So what is joy and happiness and where are they similar? Where are they different? So happiness is an emotional response to external circumstances, right? Simply, that just means like when nice things happen, I feel good, right? That's just at base what it means. Now, you and I can control this in some ways. We can insulate ourselves away from the hard things and we can make extra time for the things we like, Right? This essentially is the way that our society works right now. We pursue pleasure. That is the God-given right as the pursuit of happiness. Now, ultimately, 
Because happiness is based on external circumstances, when those circumstances change, your level of happiness changes. And so it is a vulnerable form of gladness. Joy, in contrast, is also emotional in nature, meaning you feel joy, you do feel it emotionally, but it's sturdy because it endures despite changing circumstances, because it's rooted in something enduring. It's rooted in something enduring, and therefore it is enduring. Now, some people teach joy, the difference between joy and happiness is that happiness is external, joy is internal. I think that can be helpful, but ultimately from a Christian perspective, I would argue, joy is also external, but it's rooted in something enduring. Because the joy that you and I felt a few moments ago when we talked about the gospel, what it includes, that was not inside of you, nor was it inside of me. That is not just like our inner power. That is a power outside of us who is enduring and sturdy, leveraging constant goodness at us. And he does not change the way that our circumstances do. So joy is emotional in nature, but it is more sturdy and enduring. He loves us and his reality defines our reality above our circumstances. Now to to kind of um, put an exclamation mark on the ways that joy and happiness overlap and where they're incredibly different, I've got this next graphic for you. So this is a chart that um, Whitney and I first encountered about two years ago when our counselor was helping me work through some just self-awareness stuff. And you'll notice uh, there's three columns, right? The one on the left is under the title impairment. The one in the middle is under the title of truth. I'm just gonna clarify, that doesn't mean absolute truth. It means your lived true reality. Oftentimes we put a mask over such things as my sadness. The truth is you're sad even if you pretend it's not. That's why it says truth, right? And then on the right is the title of gift. So in 30 seconds, let me just explain how this whole thing works. Do you guys see in the middle where it says lonely? Lonely is the truth of what I am feeling. Now, if I choose an unhealthy way of coping with that loneliness, what I will do is I will guard myself with the impairment of apathy. So I feel less lonely, I withdraw my heart and become apathetic. I am impairing my soul. Does that make sense? In order to guard my feeling of loneliness, I pretend I really don't need anybody. I'm fine on my own. Now the opposite of that is I'm feeling lonely and because I'm working through that in a healthy way with God's guidance, the gift of my loneliness is that it can drive me towards intimacy. Loneliness is not a bad thing alone because it has a gift attached to it. It makes you seek out real love and you experience intimacy because you first felt lonely. So when we look at the bottom, it's kind of hard to see, but can you guys see where it says glad? So the impairment of glad is sensual without heart. Sensual just means sensory, like your senses. And then the gift is joy with sadness. Now, to explain how this applies to gladness. So remember we said like happiness and joy feel really interwoven. Imagine that interwoven space being the glad word. When we feel glad, if we respond to that in the pursuit of happiness alone, 
What results is sensual without heart, right? We're seeking sensory inputs to make us happy, but ultimately we're not actually passionate about any of those things. All we want is just something to make me feel good. So I'm being driven to seek out external things to make me feel glad, but there's no depth of heart or true connection in there. The opposite of that is if we pursue gladness with a a healthy Christ-centered mindset, what it drives us to is joy with sadness. So the most healthy response to gladness is joy and sadness. Now, if you are like me, you hear this and you cringe and you're like, what? Why is that better? (laughs) That's not better at all. Unfortunately, the fact of our world is that joy and sadness intention is, that's just the way it works. And because our culture um, does not like sadness, we have a hard time realizing that living your entire life in the tension between joy and sadness is actually a spiritually healthy, long-term state of being. Here's why. The Bible is brutally honest about the hardships of life, both in, in narrative, specific human stories, and in principles and taught, taught word. Its writers do not put on facades of happiness. What they instead do is they accurately and factually describe a broken world that's groaning for rescue and restoration, a world that's groaning for something better. And the writers of scripture in God find joy for the same five reasons we covered earlier. And what they realize is in their lifetime, the sadness of the world is not going to go away. But what that does is that sadness drives them to rejoice in God's promises and his mercy and his presence. It drives them to put their hope in something better and enduring that's outside of themselves and their external circumstances. And because now they're so excited for what God promises, and the hope of justification and sanctification and glorification, they're so excited, they then step out their front door and see how broken the world is and they can't help but cry. And because they're so brokenhearted, they look to God and they say, God, thank you for everything you've promised. Thank you that you are outside of all of my external circumstances. And so it drives them into great sadness because the world is just hard, but it also drives them to great untouchable joy that gets them through the sadness with rejoicing. Now, again, culturally, we don't like sadness. And so when I show that graph that says a healthy response to gladness is joy and sadness, we're like, cut that in half, keep the joy, let's move on. And what that does is that creates a very real internal gap. Because I can use my cognition to choose happiness. I want happiness. I don't want sadness. And so I separate anything that makes me sad, whether it's externally hiding from it or internally putting up walls or barriers that protect me from it. Essentially, I get to choose what I want to feel. And over time, that creates a barrier to us feeling joy, and that is called disintegration. 
means that you are no longer an integrated whole soul. Your cognitive mind and your soul have separated in some fashion and are no longer one. Now, what is the result of disintegration? One word, numbness. When our cognitions pretend that realities are not there, we essentially turn off all of our lived emotional reality. We experience that sensuality or that sensory pursuit without heart. And so it's hard for us to taste the joy of the gospel when we've turned off half of ourselves. Now, because we want gladness, we surround ourselves with stimuli and our heart gets left behind and that is called distraction. Now, interestingly, disintegration, want it, like just creating a gap between what I want and what I feel, that motivates distraction, right? It's hard to forget the things that hurt us unless we're constantly busy or constantly have something feeding us entertainment, whatever. So disintegration motivates distraction, but also distraction can cause disintegration. What that just means is I'm so busy, I don't have time to know what I'm actually feeling. I don't got time to journal. I don't got time to pray. I don't got time to be self-aware. I got deadlines. I got kids. Some of that's choice. Some of it's just life. But either way, there's a bit of this like negative feedback loop between disintegration causing distraction, distraction causing disintegration, and it goes down like that. Now, we have finally arrived. Do you guys remember this, my chocolate bar? <laughs> Before I tell you what it is, can anyone tell me what it is? And I've got the nicest chocolate bars I could find at Walmart as a prize. <laughs> Does anyone... I'm generous, yes. Uh, yes. It can only be shared if it's broken. Man, that is better than what I have to say. Uh, close, but maybe. Uh, yes, right here. Because you break it up in pieces and it makes you happy. You guys, are, you're, you're on to something. Did you have your hand up? Okay. It's very special, just like all of us. Meant to eat one bite at a time, okay? Each piece is unique in its own way. Now you're describing snowflakes. It should be savored. And it should be shared. I have one more hand in the back. Yes. Um, you can use the joy that God gave you to share with others. You guys are all touching on it. Oh, we got one more. Bitterness and chocolate, but it's also delicious. Guys, next time, can you just preach for me? Um, I'm going to give it because of your comprehensiveness, Tom. I'm going to let you in. Here's... here's um, before I explain, do you want 90% cacao or do you want sea salt? No, none of these are nutty. 
cacao. Congratulations, sir. You guys all touched on it, that it's meant for sharing. God's given us something we can share, that you break it into pieces and you share it. Yeah, so chocolate is in chunks. It's meant to be broken up and given and passed around. But also where we're at right now in terms of disintegration and distraction is chocolate is meant to be savored. Chocolate can be used as a coping mechanism. It can be used as distraction. When my heart is disintegrated, I feel numb and I want something to stimulate me. And so I'm going to sit down with a movie. This is my real life. I'm going to sit down with a movie and like gnaw on this chocolate bar. And what ultimately ends up happening is I eat this chocolate bar. I don't enjoy this chocolate bar. Can you guys resonate with that at all? It's literally in my mouth right now and I don't know what it tastes like. Because it's, I'm pursuing sensory input without heart. I'm living in a disintegrated way. And so my point here, as we get to the middle of the sermon, is that we can do the exact same with the gospel. When we feel that gap between head and heart disintegration, we can sometimes use the gospel as a candy bar. At least I do. And I kind of like beat my heart with it. And I kind of like chew on the gospel. And I'm like, come on, really quick, like, make me happy. And it's very similar to a chocolate bar. It has the potential to give me great joy. But the way that I'm consuming it is actually pursuing an external stimuli rather than savoring it for what it really is. Now, if you have any question about distraction and, and it's, uh, is it in the Bible, is it theologically accurate, I would point you to Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus talks about the parable of the sowers and he's describing the seeds of the kingdom of God landing on different soils. And one of those soils he describes this way. He says, the seed landed on the soil among thorns. And the thorns of distraction and cares of the world choked it out. And then he says, and there was another soil that was good soil. And the seeds of the kingdom of God landed on that and it grew and it bloomed into a big tree and it bore fruit a hundred times over. So the reality is distraction and disintegration is not only about us being able to taste joy. Ultimately, it's about the gospel blooming. If we allow for distraction long-term, it will keep the gospel from blooming into a fruitful, life-giving plant. Now, what is the answer for us in order to experience the fruitfulness of the gospel, experience the joy of the gospel. It's kind of easy, right? You just remove disintegration and you remove distraction. You just get rid of them. It's a lot easier said than done. But I would put before us something that you've probably heard before. If you remove disintegration, that is called reintegration. If you remove distraction, that is called silence and space. These two things are what scripture calls meditation and contemplation and prayer and Sabbath and fasting. 
It's like God knew the tendencies of our heart and gave us tools to combat it. And he said, do these things and align yourself to receive my grace in such a way that it blooms good fruit. Now, what I am not saying is I'm talking about reintegration. What I'm not saying is that your natural self is always right. It's not the power in you that makes you better. What I am saying is that when there's a gap between our cognition and our heart or our being, we leave parts of ourselves outside of the influence of Jesus Christ. We leave half of us outside of the conversation. And unless we bring the entirety of ourselves, both the good parts and the parts we don't like, and the, the, the holy parts and the sinful parts, unless we bring all of that to Christ's presence, we will not experience transformation and healing. This concept of reintegration, removing distraction, is really complicated and honestly much a longer conversation. And so if this is intriguing you at all, I would just encourage you, email hello at olivelife.church and or come find me. And I would love to talk with you and figure out, like, it might not be me or us, but like, what's the, the next step for you? If this is feeling accurate, don't try to do this on your own. That's why God's given us brothers and sisters. Now, the way we're going to spend the rest of our time is rather than just give you more information about what joy is and how you should have it, we're going to spend a few minutes making space to push back and allow for reintegration and allow for silence. So I have three phases to this. The first one is simply 60 seconds to allow your cognition in your body to reintegrate. What that means is Take a deep breath. Listen to your breathing if that helps. Um, Something that helps with body awareness are two things. They sound kind of weird, but pay attention to your feet in your socks. Like wiggle your toes and just feel what it feels like to wear shoes. Or like your tongue in your mouth. Become aware of your mouth. Feel your teeth. Feel your tongue. Become aware of the body that you're living in right now. And as you're doing that, maybe ask the question of like, body, how are you? Are you tight? Are you aching? The reality is there's, our emotions are physical in nature, right? This is why when you're angry, your face gets red. When you're sad, you cry and get fatigue. When you're anxious, your chest tightens because those things are bodily affected. So I'm going to spend 60 seconds and there'll be a timer on the screen just so none of us lose track. And just do some of those things. Listen to your breathing. Ask your body, how are you? Pay attention to the aches and pains. And then I'll move on.
that's the intro. Next, I have a present for you. Hannah, Luke, would you guys come on out? You guys remember how I've been talking about chocolate bars? Congratulations, chocolate bars for everybody. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, I've brought you guys candy. And that seems really silly, but what we're learning to do is physically do what we desire to do spiritually. And that is savor. If we don't know how to savor with our bodies, it's hard to savor with our souls. And so Luke and Hannah are passing around some chocolate. You can pick your favorite one out of there. The ones that are like um, gold colored or bronze colored have nuts in them. Careful. Uh, the ones that are not gold colored, I'm pretty sure are nut free. Now, here's really, as they're passing that out, here's really what we're going to do right after this. So we're, we're first going to spend 60 seconds savoring bodily. And use this as a springboard for worship that just says, Jesus, thank you. You've given me a, a mouth and a tongue and a body. You've created a world where mangoes and dark chocolate exist. Like, it seems silly, but he, he made a world and he said, I like it. And this is what we're participating in. And after this, I'm going to read to you a gospel message out of 1 Peter. And we're going to savor that with our souls. So we're warming up our ability to savor bodily so we can then savor the gospel spiritually. Yeah, sorry, I'm just waiting for the chocolate to go around. Yeah, right now, if you want to start, open it up. If it helps, close your eyes. Just enjoy. chocolate, keep enjoying that. But I'm going to add one more thing for you to savor. And this is out of 1 Peter. I've chosen three excerpts from 1 Peter chapter 1 and then one from 1 Peter chapter 2. In the same way that we like let the chocolate roll around our mouths and we enjoy it and we say, Jesus, thank you. Like, that's practicing. So when this hits our ears and our hearts, we let it roll around and simmer and turn into joy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused you and I to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded with faith, 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, joy and sadness, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes though it's tested by fire, so that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You are obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, the grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. It's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So as you come to him, chapter two, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You, me, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It stands in scripture, quote, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are holy, a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were alone. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, exclamation mark. Do you guys feel that at all? Do you feel like there's something outside of you that's enduring, that's pointed at your heart with good news and it's, it's like beginning to like bubble a little bit? Once I was alone and rejected by men, but now a king has called me precious. Once I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy. So there's one final step to reintegration, and that is expression. If you're feeling something and you never let it out, it kind of just fizzles. If you've got that crush and you never say, I like you. And so this is where we're at. If you're feeling like joy bubbling, I want to help you with expressing that right now. Would you just do this? Jesus, thank you. Like, 
When joy is shared, it multiplies. When joy is kept alone, it is stifled. And this is why we again are back to the chocolate bar as the very intelligent lady in the back said. This is meant to be broken up and shared. It's meant to multiply joy. I used to work in an office where uh, this lady like bought a bag of Dove chocolates and she was so excited. She literally ran from office to office to office saying, do you guys want some chocolate? It's really good. And our whole office, as silly as it is, like was a buzz with joy for at least 10 minutes as people were so excited about her joy. And this is our task in many ways, is to practice expression, to go beyond savoring, though that is key. We need to both savor and express. And not just in like a weird evangelistic obligation, right? Just like you, like we need to smile about Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you. We need to tell our brothers and sisters, guys, I'm so excited about this. Now, unfortunately, we live in a culture that is stingy with joy. We choose professionalism and normalcy over expression. And what that means is, often, like I feel this, we walk in even on Sunday mornings and it's like, hey, how are you? And even if your life's been really good, it's like, oh yeah, it's great. How are you? And what I'm kind of putting before us is what if we were generously joyful? We shared our joy generously. It's not bragging, it's sharing joy. Whether that's really like spiritual joy or just like, man, I bought a new car, it's awesome, I love it. Like, that's joy too. There can be gratitude baked into that. Now, I am over my time, so I'm gonna choose to not tell you guys my most favorite part. (laughs) I mean, I can keep going. You guys want me to keep going? Okay, great. Joy is individual, but it's also shared. So our task is to learn how to express, both savor joy and express joy individually, but then also as a gathered group of people. We want to allow our gatherings to allow for the full range of human emotion, joy and sadness, but we also want to just share joy sometimes. So I'm super, super hesitant to like put concretes on what that should be, honestly, because I don't want to create boxes of like, oh, well, you know, if you're happy, it's like, It's not helpful, like we just express joy differently. And yet, if we never talk concretes, I feel like we're just gonna miss half the picture. And so at risk of that, I'm just gonna spitball. Like what if sharing joy means that when you come in on Sundays or see your friends or your aunts and uncles or your friends, you just say like, man, I savored First Peter today. It was so good for my soul to hear this. Or, man, I bought a new truck, and I love it. It's super cool. Like, we just choose to let joy, like, seep out of us. What if when we got together, we just felt a little bit of freedom? The gospel says you don't need to impress anybody. Me, Rain, anyone here, or anyone outside this building. What that means is when you feel a little joy, I don't know if you guys are like me, but when I feel joy, I get kind of groovy. I kind of like, bum, bum, da, da, da. And so what if, like, (laughs) man, I'm really enjoying this worship song. Like, okay, I'm going to do the thing. Why would that be bad? 
I'm not telling you you have to, but that's my groovy joy. And so I need to choose like, okay, stifling my groovy joy means I'm being stingy with my joy, which means you're not experiencing my joy, which means you're not experiencing half of Trevor. And so for me to be fully Trevor with you means I'm like, and I'm just going to choose, like, gosh, that is kind of cringy, but that's an honest way that joy seeps out of my body. Man, me and Paul, nights of worship and song, song and prayer. You got it. Um, But seriously, like, what if during worship we allowed ourselves to, like, groove a little bit or clap? Um, Honestly, I feel like as a church, we've gotten, like, really good at singing. Like, I love listening to you guys sing because we're no longer a murmuring church. We're now a church that sings. Like, we sing. We give it a shot when we are worshiping. And I love that. But what if other ways, like, we pray with each other and for each other. We've got a prayer banner over there. And I the last 10 weeks that that's been up, I would say we've had three, maybe four people actually ask for prayer. Like, what if we just said like, man, I'm going to walk over there and say, and it might be like, oh, do you need a prayer request? No, I just want to celebrate. Can I pray with you? Like, Jesus, thank you, right? Or like the, the real expression for me is sadness. And so I need to go over there, but like, I'm free to express that. And like, what else for you guys? Like, are you an artist? Do you paint? Do you play music? Like, how do you express yourselves? I don't know, but like, how do you express yourself in moments of like true freedom and how could you bring that? That's your individual task, is be generously joyful. Not fake, not happy clappy, generously joyful. Now there's one other edge to this of being joyfully generous. And here's all that I will say about that. People who experience God's grace are joyfully generous because when you're celebrating something, it just kind of makes you glad and a little like generous. You guys ever like been out on an anniversary date and you tip really well? Or you're celebrating your kid's birthday and you're just so excited to buy them the thing that's way more expensive than they deserve? Like, there's something about joy that just makes us want to give. And so sometimes that's byproduct, sometimes it's choice. Um, In the Old Testament, when the Israelites would have feast days, celebrations, or when they would have Sabbaths, they would use the best that they had, even in their times of national poverty. They would break out the best wine, the the best meat, they would break out the best clothes, And that was a decision for them because they said, on the days when we're celebrating God, we're not going to be stingy. The days we're celebrating God, we're going to break out the best. I probably shouldn't, but I need to remember that God is generous. God is not a God of scarcity. He's a God of generosity. He's justified me through Christ. His spirit is in me, transforming me. He will glorify me. And so therefore, I can just be a little loose and let myself savor his presence in the world. What that means is that the Israelites were super good at partying. Like they literally partied under God's influence. Not like crazy debauchery, but they would party. And another way they would do that is they would serve the poor and they would give to the poor. And that was a way of reminding themselves that our God is generous to me. He's been generous to me and so I can be generous to others.
Sometimes that generosity spills out because I'm so glad. And sometimes I don't feel that glad. And I need to do something that bodily reminds me that God has served me and been generous with me. So as a church, all of life, we are more and more becoming joyful and generous. We're doing that because we realize we don't need to hide half of ourselves out of God's presence. We can reintegrate. We can remove distractions through practices of silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, Sabbath, meditation. We're generously joyful and we are joyfully generous. Do you pray with me? Father, I just thank you um, just for, in some ways, like the party we're having this morning, just the gladness that's around the room, the smiles that I am receiving um, that are, are like, and not just because of, of a personality, but because of you, that you are sturdy and enduring and good. Jesus, we love you. Would you guide us in this process? Give us freedom to express joy and generosity the way that you've made us specifically. Amen.